We are ready for the second and third petitions of the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verses 9 through 10. Those petitions are in verse 10, but we'll start in verse 9, which begins the Lord's, what we call the Lord's Prayer. Pray then in this way, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So as we then look at the second and third petition, thy kingdom come being the second, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven as the third, we need to reckon first with the nature of the kingdom of God and what Jesus means by that. For if we don't reckon with it, we're not going to understand what he means by this petition. Thy kingdom come. Though the petition implies a future fulfillment of the kingdom, a coming of something that's yet future, that's fairly clear from it, and that harmonizes with various scriptures that also indicate a future aspect of the kingdom. And yet it would seem to conflict perhaps with other passages which indicate an arrival of the kingdom in the days of Christ's ministry. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with the apparent contradiction? Well, we acknowledge both. And theologians have cleverly called this the now and the not yet of the kingdom. So let's consider that. Let's look first at those passages which indicate that the kingdom arrived when Jesus began his ministry. First example is Matthew 3, 1 through 2. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then in Matthew 4, 17, we see Jesus proclaiming the same message. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. In Matthew 4.23, it says, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So notice that it's the gospel of the kingdom. Why? Because the good news is that Christ is king and Christ reigns. That's the good news. It's not good news for the reprobate who don't want to be ruled over by the righteous king, but it is good news for the elect who are glad for that. And that's the ones for whom the gospel, the good news, is sent. In Isaiah 52, 7, it says, How lovely on the mountains are the feet of him who brings good news. That's where we get that gospel from. Who announces peace and brings good news of happiness. Who announces salvation and says to Zion, your God reigns. And Paul then quotes that passage in Romans 10 and applies it to the preaching of the gospel. It is good news that Jesus Christ reigns. It is the gospel of the kingdom. Well, the gospel is something we're supposed to be preaching now as a present good news, then Jesus must be reigning now. In Matthew 12, 24 through 28, we read that account of the Pharisees blaspheming the Holy Spirit in their slander of Jesus, wherein they said that Christ cast out demons by the power of Beelzebub. And Jesus demonstrated the folly of their argument and their slander. And he said at the end of that, but if I cast out demons 
by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. If I cast out demons, and that's exactly what he was doing, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When we look at the kingdom parables, it's obvious that the kingdom of God has arrived. We read expressions introducing the parables such as, the kingdom of heaven is like, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to, and then almost always that comparison signifies a present kingdom. Examples are Matthew 13, 24 through 25. Jesus presented another parable saying to them, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field, but while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. Obviously, the seed is the word of God. Christ is the sower. The enemy who sowed tares is the devil. That's describing this present world in reality, not a future thing. In Matthew 13, 31 through 32, it says he presented another parable to them, saying the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and sowed in his field. And this is smaller than all the other seeds. But when it is full grown, it is larger than the garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds of the air come and nest in its branches. That's describing the growth of the kingdom of God in this world, meaning a present fulfillment of the kingdom. Matthew 13, 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found and hid again. And from joy over it, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. That's describing something that happens in conversion in this life and world prior to heaven. And finally, one more, Colossians 1, 13, Paul speaks as the kingdom as something that believers have been transferred into past tense. For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us, past tense, into the kingdom of his beloved son. So if you have been born again, you have been transferred, past tense, into the kingdom of God. On the other hand, the kingdom is not yet in one sense. It's now and it's not yet. Thy kingdom come implies we're asking for something that hasn't. We want something to come. So we're asking for a future bestowal of the kingdom that we don't sense is here yet. It's implied in the petition. But there's other passages which imply a future fulfillment of the kingdom as well. In Matthew 7, 21 through 23, Jesus says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter and that entering is then referred to as a judgment day entering of the kingdom. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. In Matthew 20, 20 through 21, we read, the mother of the sons of Zebedee came to Jesus with her sons, bowing down and making request of him. And he said to her, what do you wish? She said to him, command that in your kingdom, these two sons of mine may sit one on your right and one on your left. In your kingdom. She's referring to something future. Matthew 25, 31 and following, Jesus tells a parable about Judgment Day, the parable of the sheep and the goats. He says, 
But when the Son of Man comes in his glory, that's the second coming, and all the angels with him, and he will sit on his glorious throne, all the nations will be gathered to before him, and he will separate them one from another, as the shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on the left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. So the sheep have always been the heirs of the kingdom, but the day will come when they will inherit the kingdom in the future on judgment day. One more, Luke 19, 11 through 12. While they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said, and this is to correct that misunderstanding that it was going to appear immediately. A nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And then the parable goes on to describe um, the eventual return and coming up back and dispensing rewards and dealing with the wicked as well. But the nobleman is clearly Christ. The distant country is heaven where he receives the kingdom and his return is judgment day where he dispenses the rewards. So he said that for those who thought the kingdom was going to appear immediately, meaning there is a sense in which it wasn't going to. So there is this now and there is a not yet. The kingdom is a spiritual realm. That is something that we also need to keep in mind. It's not a geographical realm with GPS coordinates and various longitude and latitude boundaries. And that's apparent from a number of passages. Luke 10, 7 through 11, Jesus is giving instructions to his disciples whom he is about to send out two by two. And he says... Stay in that house, eating and drinking what they give you, for the laborer is worthy of his wages. Do not keep moving from house to house. Whatever city you enter and they receive you, eat what is set before you and heal those in it who are sick and say to them, the kingdom of God has come near to you. But whatever city you enter and they do not receive you, go out into its streets and say, even the dust of your city, which clings to our feet, we wipe off and protest against you. Yet be sure of this, that the kingdom of God has come near. The kingdom of God has come near. That the apparent meaning is that the kingdom is something that can approach or recede with the disciples of Christ, who are the ambassadors of the kingdom. It's not that those cities were geographically located in a realm called the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. It was that the, the spiritual kingdom of God came near to those cities. In Luke 17, 20-21, we read, Now having been questioned by the Pharisees as to when the kingdom of God was coming, he answered them and said, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, Look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. The kingdom of God is not over there. It's not over here like a piece of real estate. It's in your midst. It's a spiritual kingdom. In John 18, 36, Jesus made the well-known statement to Pilate 
saying, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. So to put it simply, the kingdom of God, also called the kingdom of heaven, is where the king is and where the king's subjects are. Christ is in heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, along with a multitude of his subjects, both angels and human souls. So his kingdom is in heaven, but Christ is also present on earth through his Holy Spirit, dwelling in his people here, and so the kingdom is also here in that regard. In John 14, 16 through 18, thinking of the Holy Spirit and how he comes to play in this issue of the kingdom, Jesus promised his disciples that the Spirit would be given to them. He said, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not see him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Jesus ascends to heaven. The Spirit is sent down at Pentecost. But Jesus describes that sending of the Spirit as I will come to you. Christ would come to them through the Spirit. And in some places in Scripture, the Spirit is called the Spirit of Jesus. He's also called the Spirit of the Father. But this is the way Jesus dwells in you through his Holy Spirit. Not corporally, but by his Holy Spirit. In 1 John 4.13, the apostle says, By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his Spirit. So, now that we've kind of covered the bases there regarding the nature of the kingdom of heaven, we're in a better position to understand then what is meant when we say, thy kingdom come, when we pray that. And the key really is to what thy kingdom come means is the very next petition. We might break those up in catechisms. You know, what is the second petition of the Lord's prayer? Thy kingdom come. What are we praying for in that petition? And what's the third petition? Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. But they are meant to be together, of course. And they're so closely connected that it's better to deal with them together. So if the kingdom of heaven is the rule of the heavenly king in men's hearts, then we are asking God to rule in men's hearts to a greater degree which means that we're asking for his will to be done by men as it is in heaven. How is the will of God done in heaven? Quickly, without delay, cheerfully, without reservation or regret. It's done sincerely, without hypocrisy. It's done consistently, without deviation. The inhabitants of heaven, both angels and men, do the will of God wholeheartedly, not reluctantly. When the Lord summons an angel in heaven to run an errand, you can be sure that that angel reports promptly for duty 
gets his instructions and carries them out faithfully with thanksgiving that he has been chosen by God for such a task. That's the way it ought to be done by us here as well. Psalm 103, 20-22 speaks of that angelic obedience. Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all you his hosts, you who serve him, doing his will. Bless the Lord, all you works of his, in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. So they obey the voice of the Lord. They perform his word. And the same attitude exists in those perfected souls of saints who have died and gone to heaven. They have no more sinful nature to hinder them there. There's no more selfishness to get in the way of will, the will of God. No more pride. No more laziness. No more greed. No more covetousness. No more lust. No more unrighteous anger. No more unbelief. It's all gone. And with sin gone, there is no remaining hindrance to doing the will of God. But that's heaven. So how is it possible then for the kingdom of heaven to come on earth? Thy kingdom come, spoken by people on earth, to him who is in heaven. How can that happen here? For those of us who still live in the flesh and who are hindered by the flesh. Can we hope to do the will of God here on earth the way they do it in heaven? Is that even possible? Well, scripture does teach this perfection will not be obtained this side of heaven. And I think that helps us understand better what is meant by the petitions, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We have to keep in mind that this is never going to be heaven. Insofar, and until the new heavens and the new earth, this is not going to be paradise. And we ourselves, who are believers, who love God, are going to have this thing called the flesh that fights against it so that we don't do the things that we please, as Paul says in Galatians. So we're not praying for perfection when we pray thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, since that's not given to us as a possibility, this side of heaven. We're rather praying for great progress in sanctification and a great expansion of Christ's rule in the church and in the world. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me. It's got to start with me. It's got to start with you. If you're always praying for others and never for yourself, that might strike you as an altruistic thing to do and very self-denying. But in truth, it can be very self-deceiving. If you don't pray for yourself, it's an indicator that you think you're fine and that you don't need God's help. It means that you've adopted a false position of strength whereby you are perched up from your place of strength and you're lending a hand to the weak while never owning up to your own weakness and poverty. So beware of that. Pray for others, yes, certainly, of course. But also pray for yourself and start with yourself. Sick people are not usually well equipped to take care of the sick. They need to get well themselves. 
So the first order of business is, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in me. I need to be ruled by Christ. I need to submit to the rule of Christ and his lordship. I need to be more obedient to his will. It's thy will be done, not my will be done. I need to do the will of God quickly, cheerfully, sincerely, consistently. It does no good for me to be troubled and exercised by how evil this world is and how it's going to pot and swirling down the toilet bowl if I never address my own failings. If I just bypass that all the time and look out at how terrible the world is and be almost exclusively exercised with that. The second level of kingdom expansion is the church. Christ rules in his church, but he could rule to a greater degree, couldn't he? Couldn't things be better in the church? Yes, other churches have problems. And need to be fixed. But remember, our church first. Have any of you reached such a level of Christian maturity that you can't possibly grow anymore? Have you reached your full-grown stature? Is there no possibility of growth in love amongst us from which all other virtues flow? Do you love God as much as you possibly could? And do you love other people as much as you possibly could? If the answer is no, then you have, reason, you have room to grow. Paul and Peter seem to think that there was room for growth in the first century churches that they planted and that they taught. In Philippians 1, 9 through 11, Paul prayed for that church in Philippi. He said, and this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. That's what he prayed with respect to the church in Philippi. To the church in Thessalonica, he said, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. So may your love abound more and more, he said to that church. And again in 1 Thessalonians 4, 9-10, Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. For indeed you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in all Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren... Excel still more. Excel, excel still more. You're doing great. Do even greater. Excel more. In 2 Peter 3, 17-18, Peter said, You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard, so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. But grow 
in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Grow in the knowledge and grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. What would it look like if the kingdom were to come to our church and to other churches? Think of it through the lens of the fruit of the Spirit. Because Christ comes through his Spirit. And that's how he sets up his rule in men's hearts. Well, the fruit of the Spirit is love, and there would be more love. Joy, and there would be more joy. More peace. More patience. More kindness. More goodness. More faithfulness. More gentleness. More self-control. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We know what it looks like when the king comes through his spirit and rules in a much greater way in the hearts of men and women because Acts 2, 42 through 47 is a snapshot of that very thing. And we read there, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So, the kingdom of God, via the outpouring of the Spirit, who is the Spirit of Jesus, who is the King, who rules in men's hearts, the effect of that coming to rule in men's hearts was devotion to apostolic teaching, or we would say the Bible. And the effect of that coming was devotion to it. It wasn't half-hearted interest. It was devotion. There was devotion to fellowship. They wanted to be together. Presumably not to chat about trivial things, but to talk about the things of God and the kingdom of God. They were devoted to the breaking of bread, which in this particular reference seems to be a reference to the Lord's Supper, whereas verse 46 seems to be just having their meals together. Both of that expression, breaking bread, is re used to refer to one of those two things. But you have them both here in this passage. So they were devoted to this. They were devoted to taking the Lord's Supper together. They were devoted to prayer. They prayed in private and together. They had prayer meetings, which they were devoted to. There was a sense of awe over the Lord and his workings in their midst and in their lives. Now, I'm a cessationist, which means that I don't believe that the apostolic gifts continue today. I don't believe there's any apostles today, and I don't believe that the signs that the apostles did are done today. I think those gifts passed away 
when the apostles passed away and those they laid hands on and bestowed the gifts to. But even so, I think that if the kingdom were to come today in our midst, that there would be involved with that a demonstration of the power of God at a very minimum. Because of all the wonderful things that God would be doing by virtue of his power being shown, there would be a sense of awe of God amongst us. Their grip on their money and their possessions was marvelously loosened. They sold property, gave the money to be distributed to the poor amongst them. Property is a big deal in any generation. To own property is to have a certain level of freedom. You have a place to grow food through food production. You have perhaps an annual income. You have all sorts of possibilities that open up to you. And they sold their land. And what's even more amazing about that is that this is Israel we're talking about, for whom the land was a specific tribal division and apportionment by God. So being part of the tribal inheritance was a big deal, and yet they were selling land. And beyond that, they weren't selling it just to live off of it. They didn't sell it so that they could get cash and retire early or just stow away for old age. They were selling it to give the money to the apostles to distribute to those who had need. We could be talking about a lot of money here because property doesn't usually sell cheap. Uh, there are economic uh, fluctuations, of course, and situations where in one generation in a particular place, it can be sort of overpriced and so forth. But generally speaking, property is not a cheap thing. You have to be really kingdom-minded to do something like that. A sense in which this is not my home. That's my home. That's why you can let go of those things. The next fruit of the kingdom arrival here for them was that they continued with one mind in the temple. There was a wonderful unity. They were all on the same page. There was not a series of competing agendas and priorities and pet interests. They were all kingdom-minded and kingdom-focused. Daily they went to the temple for worship. They had meals together frequently, breaking bread from house to house and eating with gladness and sincerity of heart. They were praising God. And this happened daily, day by day. That raises questions that we don't really have answers for, specifics about their lives and how this worked in with their duties. I mean, did they all quit their jobs as well? So they had time for, for this? I don't think so. The fourth commandment not only commands us to rest one day in seven, it commands us to work the other six days. I don't think they just threw that out the window. I don't think they all just became lazy. I don't think they all just became people who were like, well, yeah, let's, let's just quit working. But they might have worked less to make room for these kingdom things to the degree that one can control that sort of thing. Some people can, some people can't. But oftentimes the amount of work we have to do is connected with voluntary choices that we make. They might have made different choices concerning work that freed up lots of time for them to devote themselves, to devote themselves to now what was really important to them. 
Many of our day-to-day -day activities are not forced upon us. Many of them have to do with our choices, which reflect our priorities. There's much in truth in the expression, people do what they want to do. We don't know the details, exactly how it worked out. What we do know is that they were devoted to these things. These things would have taken up time that apparently they weren't spending that way before this. So does Acts 2, 42 through 47 sound good to you? It does to me. And that's what it would be like if the kingdom of God were to come down to us and God's will were to be done in us and through us as it is in heaven. That's what it looks like when the king comes to rule in your heart. So let's look at now the third level of expansion of the kingdom. What would it mean for the kingdom of heaven to come into the world, the realm of unbelievers? It would mean that a considerable number of lost people would be transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and of the devil into the kingdom of Christ. And they would be added to the group of Christians who were living out Acts 2, 42-47. They would then be doing those things as well. Verse 47 of that passage says, And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Wow, day by day, lost souls were being converted and added to the church. Who ever heard of such a thing? We're fortunate if we see a salvation a year. That's a good year. Day by day? Clearly, there is a power at work in those days that is not at work in our days. In Peter's sermon of Acts 2, we read that he spoke very boldly and laid the crucifixion of Christ and the shedding of his innocent blood on the heads of his hearers. And they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? And he said, repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And those who received his word that day were 3,000 in number. They were baptized and added to the church. 3,000 in one day. And later in Acts 4, after many more conversions, the number came to be about 5,000. Some commentators think that indicates 5,000 more, meaning 8,000 total now. Others think it means that there were 2,000 more added and the total came to 5,000. But in any case, there's lots of people being added to the church in a short amount of time, very much unlike our days. In Acts 8, 4 through 8, we see another example of what it looks like when thy kingdom come invades the world of unbelievers. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria, Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. The crowds with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip. They were just ignoring at him, ignoring him. They were throwing eggs at him. They were giving attention to what he said as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. So there was much rejoicing in that city. Much rejoicing in that city. Because the kingdom of God came down to them. 
In Acts 14.1 we read, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together, and they spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of Jews and of Greeks. They believed, meaning they didn't believe before that this was a new thing. They believed. They were converted. The same in Acts 19, 18-20. Many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing and disclosing their practices, saying to people and groups, I've done this and I've done this thing and I've done this and I'm a wretch and I confess it. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books together and began burning them in the sight of everyone. And they counted up the price of them and found it 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord was growing mightily and prevailing. So they took these books that totaled 50,000 pieces of silver, sounds like a lot of money, and they just torched it because they were wicked books. That's what it looks like when the kingdom of God comes and his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. That's glorious and magnificent. But can such things happen today? Or is this just like the miracles that passed away? The gift of miracles, I should say. Of performing miracles, of gift of healing and so forth. No, it can happen today. Over the last two millennium, there have been a number of outpourings of the Holy Spirit. Revivals, we call them. That's what we're talking about here, essentially. When the Spirit is poured out and when the kingdom has come down to churches, communities, and even nations, we generally call that revival. A great number of books have been written chronicling the revivals that have occurred from time to time, from place to place. So the obvious question is, why don't we see this prayer, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, answered in our lives, in our churches, in our communities, in our world today? Why don't we experience the kingdom power today that we see happening in the book of Acts? Perhaps it's because we're not praying these petitions and asking for these things to occur. The Apostle James said, you don't have because you don't ask. So are you praying, dear believer, as Christ taught you to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not in a rote fashion, not in a formal ritualistic fashion, but do you pray it? Another reason that we might not see these things happen, perhaps, is because when we do pray it, there's no real sincere desire for it. We don't mean it, and God knows we don't mean it. Maybe we're like the man who prays for rain and never takes an umbrella. Or a man who prays for rain and then he leaves all his power tools laying out in the yard every night. Does he really want rain? Does he expect rain? What is this prayer for rain? Why does he not act like he wants rain? Or that he thinks it's ever going to be answered? It doesn't appear that he really wants rain. Are we like him? He has no faith. His prayer is a meaningless ritual when he prays for rain. As scripture tells us over and over, we must pray in faith 
For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea blown and tossed by the wind. Let not that man think he will receive anything. Why would someone pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and not believe it would be granted? Why? Is it because we're too wicked for God to bring his kingdom? America is so bad, right? It is. It's awful. This country is exceedingly wicked, and it's just too wicked for God to bring his kingdom. And I would say, since when has God ever withheld his good mercy from sinners because they were too sinful? Too bad to deserve it? Too bad for mercy? What kind of talk is that? Don't you have to be bad to receive mercy? In the first place, doesn't the very concept of mercy, the very definition of it, imply and presuppose evil? Of course, we all agree that God doesn't have to grant mercy. That's also inherent in the definition. That God has a sovereign right to grant it or not. So, we, yeah, we must acknowledge that. But who was it who told us to pray this way? Who was it who put this petition in our mouth and said, pray this way, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Did Jesus really put that petition in our mouths because he wanted us to chase rabbits and fail? Isn't the fact that Jesus taught us to pray this way warrant enough to believe that God is favorably disposed to answer? Perhaps you think God would never grant this request because of your eschatology. Maybe you believe that things are going to get worse and worse, not better. That is, you're a premillennialist or you're an amillennialist and you're definitely not a postmillennialist. Well, indeed, there are a number of passages in Scripture which talk about things getting very bad, right? And in the last days, and then we have debates over what does the last days mean. So it's complex. And then there are passages like 2 Thessalonians 2, which talk about a great apostasy that will occur before the day of the Lord. And the man of lawlessness being revealed and people being deceived and so forth. Those need to be reckoned with. There's the book of Revelation, which has an awful lot of bad things happening in the world. And a lot of wickedness in the world that we read about. So I acknowledge those things and I give them due diligence. And for the record, after 23 years of ministry, I'm still uncommitted when it comes to a millennial position. Call me confused if you want. That's fine. I probably am. But it's not because I haven't studied this issue. Rather, the reverse. I've studied it with quite a bit of diligence and solicitude. I just think there are problematic passages for each of the camps and I'm reluctant to dismiss those passages just so I can arrive at the desired resolution and peace. But what I want to suggest to you here is that it doesn't actually matter what your eschatology is when it comes to praying the Lord's prayer 
and the petitions. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And it doesn't matter in this sense. I'm not saying eschatology doesn't matter. I'm saying it doesn't matter in this sense which millennial position you have. First, you should pray these petitions in obedience no matter how bad you think the world is or how bad you think it will become. Jesus didn't say, pray this way, unless, of course, you think it's going to get really bad and then don't bother. Secondly, you should pray in faith that God will answer these petitions, however well that fits or doesn't fit with your eschatology. Because the man who put them in your mouth is Christ Jesus. Those petitions and your duty to pray them are matters actually of much greater clarity than your eschatology is. No matter what degree of certainty you believe you have eschatologically. Thirdly, God can pour out his spirit from place to place and from time to time quickening individuals, churches, communities, and even nations here and there, even while much of the world continues its downward spiral. That has, in fact, been the case historically. Fourthly, if your eschatology emphasizes that things are always going to get worse, and more importantly, if the proper application of that declension is that you should not pray thy kingdom come, which is absurd, or that you should pray but not expect God to answer it until the millennium or the new heavens and the new earth arrives, then why has God already poured out his spirit in so many places in the world and in so many eras, bringing revival and awakening to so many? The logic you employ could have been employed in any century, including in the first, to dissuade people from ever thinking that such blessings could occur, and such blessings did occur. So even if the eschatology is correct, things are going to get worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. That never stopped God before from pouring out his spirit and reviving communities and even nations. If all Christ meant by these petitions when teaching us to pray them was that one day there would be a millennium on the earth ushered in by the second coming of Jesus Christ or that there would be a new heavens and a new earth someday, then why has God poured out his spirit so many times on churches and communities and nations bringing the kingdom of Christ into men's hearts with great power? Was he just humoring the misguided prayers of his people? If so, I'd like for him to humor us again. The way I see it, there's no excuse. Whatever one's eschatology is, there's no excuse for not praying these petitions. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and praying them with faith and expectancy. We ought to pray them. We ought to believe that God will grant them by causing his will to be done on earth here as it is in heaven. In that, his name is hallowed. Let's pray.
Father, forgive us for all of our unbelief by which you tell us to do things and tell us to pray for things and we don't believe you. We pray that you would help us to be like the child who doesn't understand everything but just does it and who says, well, I don't understand necessarily why, I don't understand all the thinking and the reasoning, but I I know what you said to do and so I'll do that. Help us to pray, to know what it is we're praying, to pray for an expansion and enlargement of your kingdom both first in ourselves and in our church and in other churches, our communities, our nation, the world. You can do this, Lord. You've done it before. We pray that you would do it again. pray that your kingdom would come. This world is full of examples that we need you as king, that we need you to rule. Our country needs you to rule. Our rulers are for a long time have been completely inept and don't know what they're doing or what they know they're doing is evil. Lord, uh, Mexico needs you to rule them. China needs you to rule them. North Korea needs you to rule them. Iran needs you to rule them. South Africa needs you. Haiti needs you. Myanmar needs you. I need you to come need you to rule. Churches in disarray and disorder and squabbling need you to rule. Thy kingdom come. In Jesus' name.